0: Everybody, welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of August 1st, 2023. I can't believe the year's well on its way to being half over. Uh, this Crazy. is an interesting week of DC Comics, I will say. Uh, we haven't been overwhelmed, I'll say, with the Night Terrors event, which we sort of expected, but even with those low expectations... At times, it's underwhelmed. At times, it's sort of exceeded those expectations, I guess, uh, only because they're so low, very low bar. Um, We really struggled with the first week that these titles were released. They just really didn't seem to be very good. So what's interesting is now that we're in August, we're getting the second issue of a lot of those titles that we initially didn't care for. And, And I feel like so much of it had to do with the art. The art just wasn't very strong. And you know, as the art improved the second week, I felt like, ah, oh, that was better. And then the third week dipped back down, the fourth week kind of went back up. And now we're where are we on the roller coaster? If we keep the same pattern, this would be a down week. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how it all plays out. I I sort of have mixed feelings. Um maybe partly because I'm still on the high from San Diego Comic-Con and I'm I'm looking at some of these things as maybe better than like, oh, I need to be a little more objective or are they really as bad as they first appear? So anyway, yeah. what'd you think of the, what did you think of the week overall Rocky?
1: Well, it's interesting that you think, you know, you, you mentioned the art. I actually, I have, the art is serviceable to me the art's fine. Actually. I, I don't I actually don't even mind the change in artistic style a little bit. I, I'm just looking for, I'm looking for story. And I know that you only, they only got two issues, the two chapters here for these individual night terrors, you know, collateral issues for these individual titles. And just, you know, you can give me a theme, give me a message. What, what's just, you can tell me a, a simplistic story, but have a message behind it. I'm a sucker for a good metaphor. There's no reason why those writer, writers can't do that. I see uh, there, there are some examples that the writers have succeeded, I think, to, you know, giving me a story with maybe their own kind of message about the character in the context of a dream or a nightmare. You, there are still some lessons, some life lessons that readers can learn from. And it, you know, it just takes, It again, it just takes, you know, what kind of story is it? And there's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of ones I'm going to try to give some credit to, but overall it's still, you know, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, You and I are longtime readers, but I've actually, I'm actually surprised. There's some newer people in the shop that have checked out in my local comic shop. They've actually been enjoying Night Terrors more than I would have thought. And so you, you you sort of alluded to it earlier when you talked about biases and what have you. And maybe sometimes, you know, we just got to step back. And it's hard for me to think what a new time reader would would feel like because I haven't been a new time reader in like four decades. So I don't know what that feels like. So <laughs> sometimes I got to step back and maybe say, hey, you know, maybe to new readers, they, this would feel uh, better than it's feeling to me. But we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I had some people tell me at, at San Diego Comic-Con uh, that their favorite Night Terrors book was was Nightwing, you know, and that one was kind of like at the bottom of our list, and they were like, "Oh, it was so yeah, great. I know, it was our favorite, and lo- <laughs> just loving it." And like, what? Did you not read the same book as me? But yeah, I mean, you're right. Everybody's really? tastes are different, and maybe they're enjoying it, uh, you know, more than we are. So, anyway, we'll kick it off with Night Terrors, Poison Ivy number two from writer G Willow Wilson, Atagwin Ilhan is the penciler, Mark Morales on inks, Arif Prianto on colors, Hassan Atman Elhau on uh, letters this one was okay i again the art very thick lines very very thick lines everything looks a little plasticky but it's a dream so you know you can kind of set that aside and you know it's you wilson she's a talented writer i typically enjoy her stuff this fell into a little bit of the cliche for me toward the end poison ivy's confronting some of these other characters in, in the dreams confronting the, the dream character that is wearing the Batman mask. And, um, you know, she's realizing this is a dream and that's not the real Hierley, That's not the real Batman. Who are you really? Pulls the mask off and she's faced with herself. Right. So again, very cliche, not, not anything that's groundbreaking. Think back to things like God, even star Wars, right. When, you know, don't go in the, the dark cave on Dagobah and, he faces yeah. <laughs> Vader's there. He cuts the head off. It's his own, you know, it's Luke's own face. Uh, so this isn't anything new, right? Like your know, worst nightmares yourself, the way you see yourself. Nobody's harder on you than, you know, yourself, self-judgment, that sort of thing. So, uh, the kind of interesting, the, the thing about it is though, the way that it ends with, uh, Janet from HR, um, waking up on this park bench in what I assume is Gotham city um, you know, asking for Pamela Isley wondering, is she still awake? Is she still dreaming? That is sort of the, the, the problem I'm, I'm going to probably be having if all of these series end the way that this, this one does right. These two issue series. Uh, nothing's going to be resolved in here. Cause no, you got to go read night terrors three and four when it wraps everything up. So it really sort of emphasizes, again, like, what what was the point of these two-issue series? Does it get people to spend money? You know, kind of like a future state-type situation where nothing's really going to be resolved. Nothing. It's all cliched. It's all – I end up feeling like, why did I read that? Like, why did I take the time to read that? Now, now some of them are entertaining in in and of themselves, and maybe I won't feel that way. But there are, are some. This one leans toward that a little bit. Like, this didn't give me any real new information for Poison Ivy. And I I ended up feeling a little bit like, what was the point of me reading this? Um, Again, less so, because I I think there are things to be explored here. If you're a newer reader, you're not, like you were mentioning, you're not as familiar with Ivy and Harley's relationship. There is context there. There is nuance. And there are things here that could be explored in the regular Poison Ivy series that G. Willow Wilson writes. Um, We'll just have to wait and see. But for me, this one was only okay. Like if I was grading it on a one to ten, I'd probably give it a six, right? Just above average, um, but not a whole lot there. It's not something I'd go back and reread. So, uh, sure. what, what were your thoughts on it?
1: Well, first, I I want to give some credit to Willow Wilson. She incorporates characters from her main series proper, and one of the characters is Janet from HR, from the Human Relations Department. And yeah. Janet, uh, whether whether you like Janet or not, she's part of the story, and she's incorporated here. In, in once again, sort of a fudging of the rules that we don't really know what the rules are regarding the, this nightmare realm. How does how is it that Janice is trapped in Poison Ivy's dream? I mean, because that's exactly what Janet Janet is in Poison Ivy's dream. Well, how is that possible? Well, that's never explained, and we that's that's not we shouldn't expect an explanation. Uh, what what I the only way that I can get something out of this, and I did get a little bit out of it, is. I said this before a thousand times uh in our reviews. I'm a sucker for a good metaphor. And I actually really love the I get, I'm get I get an Alice in Wonderland kind of feel with this art here, particularly uh uh artist Attorgan Elhan's art. I love the way he does the eyes and I love the color work. I just really love the art art here in this in this issue. I just I really like it. And in particular, where where I where I'm getting the symbol and, and the metaphor and some theme here is Ivy doesn't let uh, Ivy, there's two things. Ivy doesn't let uh, Pam, uh, uh, or, or pardon me, Ivy doesn't let Harley fight her own demons, and so Ivy is very protective of Harley. And there's that theme there again, and that's how s- the strength of their relationship. Ivy and and uh, Harley are very close, and you know maybe it's the new modern age interpretation of heroism, where you don't let other people fight their own demons; you can help them fight their own demons. And Poison Ivy is very protective of Harley, and and also there is the there is the fact that nightmares, there's nothing alive in a nightmare. You can't kill a nightmare. A nightmare is never alive to begin with. And the way I see it here, Poison Ivy is the embodiment of life. She's literally a living plant by some interpretation. Uh, and here she is, she's trapped in a nightmare. The fact that she's having a nightmare in and of itself is Poison Ivy's worst kind of dream, especially if you accept the fact that a nightmare is not alive to begin with. And yet here she is, She's she's nonetheless willing to live in a horrible dream where there's technically no life just because Harley is there and she loves Harley enough that she'd be willing to live in her own nightmare just for Harley. That's what I get out of this story. And I think that's why I I get more out of the story. And maybe that's just my own headcanon, but that's sort of what I'm getting out of it. And the rest of this is just window dressing beautiful window dressing thanks to uh Elhan's art with Batman Batman and Selina being the terrible neighbors you know like uh you know making well, Poison Ivy's life miserable and then Janet from HR showing up and then at the end i mean you know Poison Ivy gets out of the dream this sort of nightmare 50s idyllic life that she she's that she was living and of course all these part 2s are going to end with this you know being being uh can, the story finishing technically in night's end or night terrors three and four but i i thought this was one of the better ones and again like i said i think it's best to i'm jay Willow wilson at least had a little bit of something to say building on the character work that she had in the main series proper this was further developed there and so that's why i didn't mind this
0: yeah one of the things i'll, I'll mention before we move on to um and again your mileage may vary so, some of them were a little bit more of a chore to read than others but almost every every book was more than just 22 pages i think um a couple of yeah 30
1: pages often some of them are 30 pages or 36 yeah Yeah,
0: like there was one in particular i was reading i'm like how long is this book and i was god 30 pages i wonder it feels like it's going on forever uh anyway up next we have night terrors black adam number two uh, written and illustrated by Jeremy Hahn, colors by Nick Filardi, and Rex Locus, letters by Troy Petrie. This was one of the ones that we we liked the art the first go-round, even if we weren't 100% on board with it not necessarily jiving with the recent uh Christopher Priest run on Black Adam that we really, really enjoyed. I felt like the art took a little bit of a step back. It wasn't quite as sharp um on this one, but It was interesting. I liked seeing Black Adam confront the wizard. Uh, I liked the fact that the wizard turned into like this giant, almost kaiju-like monster skeleton type. Um, And it really is exploring some of the the true fears of of Black Adam. But I felt like it didn't go far enough. Um, And maybe that was because the, the panels tended to be really large here. So there wasn't as a lot of space for as much characterization as I maybe would have liked. Um, but I don't know. Again, yeah, maybe I'm just biased that Christopher priest, recent black Adam run, just it showed so much of the potential of the character that he can be so much more than just a mustache twirling villain or anti-hero. Like he's been for so long in the DCU. Um, there's so much complexity and, and potential for him, which I, I had never really considered. Um, Cause he's always just, Sort of been a two dimensional character, uh, to be honest. So, this was in my mind a little bit of a step backward, but I, I did enjoy the art, even though it wasn't quite as sharp. The color work, especially, was really, really fantastic. Um, and I could, I could sort of see maybe where Jeremy Hahn was trying to uh, incorporate a little bit of what Christopher Priest had done recently, but it just wasn't as sophisticated or executed quite as well. But, um, you know, this was another one that ended with without an ending basically um with it saying to be continued in night terrors night's end which um night terrors night's end i mean maybe there's a some anthologies coming that are gonna finish this off um because it didn't say you know finish a night terrors number three or number four or what have you i know there's a checklist um but i honestly haven't looked at it that closely so uh anyway what were your thoughts on uh black adam number two uh, this
1: was uh, this was just as weak as the first one, because I, I just didn't see the point of this. I, I don't even know what Black Adam is looking at. Uh, why is the wizard part of his nightmare? Uh, I, at one point, he says, the wizard turns into this. I don't even know. I don't know what the wizard turns into, uh, an Egyptian something, yeah. and, and says, I am the shape behind your eyes, the resplendent truth you have sought for in eternity. Well, what is that? Like what? <laughs> what has what, what he sought for an eternity? What has Black Adam sought for an eternity? I mean, we, we we got this complex character that Christopher Priest gave us a lot of complexity to Black Adam. Well, he's he's sort of sought for a redemption and felt guilty for an eternity, and I have some idea what he's sought for sought for an eternity. But uh, this, uh, uh, I agree with you that there's maybe slight little hints that he could have he could go where christopher priest was sort of drawing him but of course christopher priest ended with with teth adam and black adam being split and this isn't that and man it would have been so amazing to incorporate that nightmare i mean right now i think black adam at the end of christopher priest's story i think teth adam is living is living a form of a nightmare with being split from his black adam character and what a night what a perfect opportunity to build on that. With this Night's Night's Terror uh, two issues, but it's completely different. Completely ignores because for peace run. But in fairness to Jeremy Hahn, I don't mind his art. I don't mind his color. He did his own art and colors. Uh, The artistically, it's good. I just don't know what's this character. What's his nightmare? What's the point? This seems really, really redundant. And I just, I, I mean, I wish I, I just, I don't understand the point. I don't know what Black Adam is even terrified about he says no on the final page no what's he afraid of he's staring at i mean he knows he's a nightmare i mean dead man in the form of uh, batman tells him at the beginning that there's a you know tells him basically what's going on black adam's smarter than this and i you know i don't know uh i acknowledge what you said you'd spoken to some creators at the san diego comic-con and they all they all are doing their best to you know, basically work with the nightmare concept, whoever they are. But this particular one, I couldn't find a metaphor to, to hang my hat on and my headcanon couldn't justify this story for me. But uh, it is what it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, not everything's going to gonna work. And, you know, <laughs> so in terms of headcanon, the best thing we could say is, hey, DC's, DC Universe is a multiverse. Find some way to make it fit. And certainly we know t- the way you look at, even if you talk about the main universe the you know earth prime earth zero whatever you want to call it like they they make no real effort to line things up in terms of time timeline anymore either right so you got to yeah. look at this as okay so maybe the events of night terrors happened before christopher priest run because yeah i mean the fact that teth adam and black adam are two separate entities right now is so fascinating has so much potential like i said and that's not what this not what this was so uh all right, up next, we have Night Terror's Batman number two, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Guillaume March, colors by Tameo Moré, and letters by Troy Petrie. Uh, you know, we mentioned previously when we talked about the first issue, how it sort of tied in to the main story a little more than most. Makes sense, Joshua Williamson's writing the main story, he's writing this. Um, so what were your thoughts on uh, issue two here?
1: This was one of the better ones. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm happy to say that I'm glad it's one of the better ones because it should be because it's Joshua Williamson and maybe Joshua Williamson, maybe he hasn't, he didn't communicate enough with the the general concept with some of the other writers, but I actually like what he did here. This actually saved it for me because I was really wondering where this was going to go. And, and this all has to do with how Joshua Williamson, I mean, Batman's having, he's having a nightmare and he's basically in his nightmare is a young Bruce Wayne, a younger version of himself as, is. is is basically holding him accountable, and Batman is in a dream where he's essentially Joe Chill, and he's 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 witnessing, he's looking at a at a twisted version of a young of his younger self, a young Bruce Wayne, who who it's revealed spent ninety minutes in the presence of his dead parents before a beat cop walked by and discovered that this young boy was orphaned, and the, the big the highlight of the issue for me isn't Batman's conversation with insomnia where insomnia, there's a black door that appears and insomnia questions. Batman saying is, is the nightmare stone behind the black door and Batman tells him, no, I don't know where the nightmare stone is. And, and it's, it's revealed, Batman reveals that this black door is what Batman himself created in the, in his own mind because Batman has trained his mind so well to get out of his nightmares, but what's preventing Batman from getting out of his nightmares in this issue, and I thought this was well done, was Deadman himself, Deadman, it possessing Batman's body in the waking world is making it more difficult for Batman to get out psychologically of his dream as Batman normally would. So I kind of like that because it kind of plays up that Batman could normally get out of this nightmare probably better, faster than most, but dead man is causing a hindrance there. But in the meantime, what happens and what Williamson scripts so well is a conversation that Batman has with his younger self. And this is something that this actually had had an impact on me. I don't want to, this is where I, I could, I I could be, if, if I'm not careful, I could overshare my own personal experiences, but there was a time in my life where it, it is a part of a uh, f- form of therapy. And yes, I have had, I, I have had some therapy in my life uh, to the surprise of perhaps no one, but uh, <laughs> you you can actually uh, talk to your inner child. That's actually part of it. And it's, it's, it's interesting what you can reveal there. And, and what I really love it here, this is Batman talking to his younger self, Telling his younger self that, you know, you're going to grow, you know, in this moment, you think your mission is yours and yours alone, but you're never alone and you'll have a life unlike you ever expected. Uh, and you, you'll have friends you can't imagine, someone who can fly and shoot fire from their eyes, someone who can stop bullets with their bracelets, who are so fast they can break the speed barrier, and children who will make you into a better man. And a young Bruce Wayne says to Batman, that sounds like a dream. And he says, it's more than that, it's family. And I got to tell you, when you connect with your inner child, because Batman, part of Batman, in I think in Williamson's interpretation, always wondered because you ask yourself, if you could talk to your younger self, you know, do you think your younger self would be disappointed with who you became? The expectations you have, because we're always hardest on ourselves. Would, would a younger version of myself be disappointed with what I did with my life? That's a harsh question to answer. And if you've got a low self esteem or you're at a low point in your life, Coming to terms with that answer is huge. And that's what Batman does with here when he's speaking to his younger self. And it's a beautiful ending because his younger self says, I'm proud of you. And that's so powerful to Batman. And what's so uplifting about it is that here, Batman, he's in a nightmare of his own making. And somehow he becomes more empowered by it it, just by talking to his younger self. I thought it was beautiful. And it ends, and, and the power of the young Bruce Wayne telling him, you know, that I'm proud of you, and then ending by saying that bats are cool. And then Batman's pulled into the light. I thought that was absolutely beautiful. That, that Like I said, it's metaphorical. It, it speaks outside the comic. There's a life lesson there. I thought this, was, this, this is what I think these night terrors should be, is that if it's disconnected from, from Dawn of the DCU and it's in its own continuity, well, tell us, give us a life lesson. Give us a theme. Give us something that we can remember. I'm going to remember this individual issue for a while because it, I, it really spoke to me and it, it brought back some good memories. And so uh, I particularly loved it. And when Batman's pulled out and he's pulled into the night, like, he it looks like he's, he confronts, he, he meets Damien. And it's unclear if he's still in a dream, but it, I think Damien himself is recovering from uh, perhaps in his own dream or waking up from his sleep. From where he was when he went to the master of sleep and dreams or whatever. But I, I actually really enjoyed this. This is one of my probably one of my picks of the week. I'm so undecided yet, but I, I really enjoyed it. What about yourself?
0: Yeah, it sounds like you liked it a little more than I did. I thought it was okay. I think I got hung up a little bit in in the sort of the continuity of it. I mean, from what we saw most recently in the main series, like Dead Man is still in control of Batman's body. We know. Batman himself doesn't like, you know, like that for lack of a better term. Um, so, you know, we can understand why it wouldn't, we understand why Batman would not want, you know, dead man in, in charge of him. That's not, that's not a a big stretch if you will, by, by, you know, any measure. Um, but it, I don't know. It, I, I Again, I, I just sort of got hung up and it just didn't seem to make the most sense to me that, that he, that Batman himself wasn't, I don't know. It just didn't make sense for me. Like, isn't Deadman still in charge? Is he, can he actually, can Batman actually kick Deadman out of his body? I, I don't know. It just, it it felt, it felt, it felt a little strange to me. Not sure that yep. it made a, a whole heck of a lot of sense, to be honest. So I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see how it all plays out in the end. Um, so, um, and, and the other thing was, <sighs> Again, I go back to the art. I mean, Guillaume March is a an extremely talented artist. And I, I've just seen his art be so much cleaner than this in the past. And here it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't feel that clean to me. Um, so again, it, w- it was okay. Um, I, I agree with you in terms of you know the ability for it to be very heartfelt, Um because it did feel like that. It did feel very much like um, Batman was sort of, you know, forgiving himself, like you said, um, being a little more forgiving of himself. We know in the past that that hasn't been the case. He's been very much somebody who, um, is as, you know, as hard on himself as he is on, on anybody. So that, that's an interesting, you know, way to look at it, if you will. So again, this, okay, just, it had the potential to be so much more than it was. Um, So I I don't know. It it wasn't, wasn't my favorite. Um, And I didn't think it was quite as strong as the, the first issue was, felt like the first issue was uh, of this was stronger. Um, Again, it might just come back to the fact that here again, we have this ambivalent ending, you know, this time with, Damien, as you you mentioned, saying, you know, we've are, we've we've lost. You know, we are awake. This isn't uh, a nightmare. Um, we are awake, and and things are bad. You know, this is the real world. We've lost. So yeah. anyway, there's a there's a backup as well uh, with red, uh, red arrow. arsenal arsenal.
1: There you go. Air, and uh, speedy,
0: yeah. <laughs> like uh, he wears red. He has a bow and arrow. Yeah, speedy arsenal. What have you? Uh, and and Black Canary, which I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. We didn't have a we didn't have a backup with them the first go round. Um, yeah, no, we, we didn't have a Night Terrors Green Arrow. No. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts on this one?
1: Well, there's really not much to say. I I actually don't I don't mind this. I will say it's not necessary, but I I love the relationship between Roy Harper and his daughter Liam Harper, and here is this is making it very clear that roy harper's fear his he's afraid of not that not that he'll ever miss a shot with his arrow but he's afraid that what he missed with his daughter and that's really what this reinforces he he's you know he's afraid that because of all that time he missed with his daughter that maybe that i'm i'm reading this into i'm I'm inferring a lot of this i'm inferring from the narrative uh, Cause it's a short, it's only like a couple you know, three or four pages. I'm um, inferring that he fears all the time he missed with his daughter is, is it's going to be a negative for him that he won't be able to catch up. He won't be able to get to know her again uh, because, and all that time that he missed. And uh, that was the most poignant for me. Uh, and meanwhile, while he's having those fears, that dream, that nightmare, uh, bacchanary fears literally not being listened to <laughs> people ignoring her and losing her voice and there's a big full page screen with her her mouth being you know closed and and she's she loses her mouth and her her, her ability to sonic cry and ultimately they, they they both wake up uh in large part because uh, bacchanary manages to scream and it'll be continues in the night's end as well whether or not they're they're in the waking world or are still or in each other's nightmare still it's not clear again as we've said in, in our reviews and all these it's never entirely clear because all the writers are inconsistent all the writers are playing by their own rules you know we're, it's we're never sure we can never be certain that any of these things are ever either in the waking world or the nightmare world we get beautiful art we often will get some pretty cool art and some interesting visuals but it's never clear where we are even though we might think we know where we are it you know, a lot of the, it depends on the narrative, but I didn't mind it. So, uh, did it, did did you feel a little bit better about about the backup?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned the the relationship that Roy Harper has with his daughter, and that, you know, it, it's a good relationship. He's clearly a devoted father. It's an interesting aspect of the character. It's it's a little more recent. Um, I mean, <laughs> say recent. But it's like been twenty years now since Leanne's been introduced, um, but certainly, uh, you know, a way to add a little depth to Roy Harper as a character, because a lot of times in the past, he's been um sort of two dimensional, right? Like just the hot head, you know, very impetuous and set his drug problems and, and that. So it, it has grounded him and, um, you know, it makes sense when you think about it, he didn't have the best childhood. And so it would make sense as a character that he would want his daughter's childhood to be much better than his own was. So, you know,
1: from that aspect,
0: it, it, it all works really, really well.
1: And i yeah, I, enjoy I should it. add yeah I should add Trevor Harrison's art is uh he continues to improve from his uh deceased series, and i i th- I thought I really thought Trevor Harrison's art continues to to shine here because i yeah, I got vibes of deceased, and of course I should because it's trevor Harrison's art, and I thought the art was was pretty good
0: yeah, I agree um so uh, but getting back to what I said, yeah I, I enjoy the Roy Harper's relationship with his daughter how much he cares about her, but it's also interesting to see. Roy's dynamic with, with Dinah, right? Because that's really sort of his stepmom in a lot of ways. You know, if you think of Ali as his, uh, you know, surrogate father, um, then certainly you would think of Black Canary as his surrogate step stepmother in a lot of ways. So I think it works on that level as well. Another thing that's interesting um, is that you know the moment where uh, you know apparently Black Canary's fear, or what Roy thinks is, is her is her fear, is losing her powers. Um, but she kind of clarifies, you know, more, it's more to do with not being heard, not being seen, you know, being ignored. And you get that image, which reminds you of nothing more so than the matrix, right? That scene <laughs> with Reeves where, you know, how, you know, how are you going to have a phone call if you can't talk? And Reeves sort of sort of closes up. But the reason I mentioned that is because in the first part, in the first story in this book, there's a moment where Batman raises his hands up and stops bullets, just like Keanu Reeves in the, in the matrix. So I was very much like, was Joshua, had Joshua Williamson just watched the matrix when he wrote these two scripts? Cause yeah, it was just something I noticed. So um, yeah, pretty interesting. You know, again, it's, it's okay. It certainly adds context, but I think it, this issue is a little emblematic of, you know, the uh, sort of the, the event overall in terms of this event's okay, but it's not, you know the end all be all it's it's not it's not necessarily living up to its, its potential I feel like so uh anyway moving on up next we have Night Terror is the Joker number two Matthew Rosenberg is the writer Stefano Rafael is the artist Ramulo Perrado Jr. on colors Tom Napolitano on the letters uh I, I seem to remember us being pretty curious about the cliffhanger the way this one ended. Um so I guess you know the next question is did this meet your expectations?
1: Well, I I will say that what met my expectations is we got more uh, Matthew Ro- Rosenberg's patented type of humor, and uh, it's interesting. I generally enjoy Matthew Rosenberg's humor. I know people, some people who do not, uh, but there definitely was some jokes here, and. Uh, I mean, in a nutshell, uh, I actually think that Matthew Rosenberg had fun with these two issues. And I'm glad that Matthew Rosenberg is restricted to two issues because he crams it all in two issues because I think he, he has a tendency to decompress. Uh, to, he's, uh, he has a tendency toward decompression when he's given 12 issues. Uh, because I think, I, I think whether it's, uh, the joke, the man who can't stop laughing or, uh, his, uh, was a task force. He, z or whatever it was I, I think he had a six issue story that he dragged out for 12 issues um but in any event uh, this is the joker who is very up, the joker kills the batman and this is the joker's worst nightmare because the batman's dead and in this part too a batman is actually still alive but it's actually the joker so the joker is mild-mannered sort of corporate worker for the man during the day and then at night the joker himself becomes batman and uh, because if batman isn't alive because batman batman is actually dead and the corpse of batman is actually in the joker's closet the joker has uh, a wife now named lena a son named albert <laughs> and i like i love the fact that joker's son albert has a has a shirt wears a t-shirt that says free punchline on it so there's a bunch of little inside jokes here uh, there's jokes that he told wh- that there's jokes that uh, the joker tells while he's batman and that is why did batman kill his side kick because he was caught robbing how does batman take his coffee dark or sometimes with just ice just ice justice anyways very you know okay now is that really funny jokes no they're bad jokes but that is the joker you expect bad jokes from the joker and it is his nightmare after all so do you expect good jokes in the nightmare for joker i don't know there's other funny moments where uh Mr. Freeze and Scarecrow show up applying ostensibly to apply for a job with the Joker at the with the Joker looking to hire them but it's clear that they're just they want the Joker they they think the Joker's up to something because he's trying to get all the spoils and he's trying to take all the credit for for Batman and and uh, I mean again all of this is a little bit schizophrenic there's even a baseball tournament a corporate baseball tournament where it seems to be like the Wayne Enterprises versus Lex lexcore Industries, and 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 at one point, you know, the Joker kills Jimmy Olsen, <laughs> strangles him to death, <laughs> and it, it's it, it, it's all kind of it's it's just crazy, and 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 Bruce Wayne is there and invites Joker back to his place uh, for shellfish, and even though he's got a shellfish allergy or some damn thing, and and again. You know, insomnia ends up being there and it, it, it sort of ends, you know, it ends with the Joker coming back to his place and witnessing his son Albert find the corpse of Batman falling out of the closet. And, uh, that's, you know, not a, not a heck of a lot more. <laughs> like I, to be honest, it just sort of ends abruptly. It just sort of ends with the Joker then waking up out of his dream and he's surrounded by Solomon Grundy, the ventriloquist and some of his other minions. And he decides to go back to sleep, which is really weird. So it's not much of a nightmare for the Joker if he's prepared to go back to sleep. So I didn't, you know, again, it was very meh. I I got to the end of this and I, I couldn't really get, you know, it was just, I chuckled at some of the jokes, but beyond that, I couldn't really get like a central, you know, point to it. it is one of those things where I just, uh, I felt a little bit, um, I sort of like just shrugged my shoulders. So I don't know. Did, did you get anything
0: out of this? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, I, I, and I sort of have mixed feelings, right? Because the immediate feeling I had when I finished reading it is like, why did I read that? <laughs> like, what was the point? Like, how does this tie into night terrors? And you know, what is there for me to really take from this? Like I, I really because yeah, it ended on the cliffhanger. And what we, we thought, well, is is that corpse of Batman that's behind him in the cloud? Is it gonna is it gonna come alive? Is it some, but it ended up just being the, this whole issue just felt like a regurgitation of the same idea that we had repeatedly in the first issue, and that's you know, you touched on it yourself. The fact that without Batman to sort of define him, the Joker feels useless. He feels like he doesn't have a purpose that was established in the first issue multiple times. And it, it does make sense if you're a long time, you know, DC reader, um, without, and again, the Joker is chaos, but if there's anything that grounds him, that keeps him from just being a complete lunatic and, and having no purpose. And, and, you know, when, when somebody is that insane and that chaotic, it's sort of easy to, to dismiss them, and you know, why do I need to care? Whatever they're they're so insane that you can't relate to them, right? Well, the the, the one thing that grounds the Joker, the one thing that keeps him doing the things that he does, like threatening citizens of Gotham or coming up with these plans, is he does it to get get to Batman, right? To threaten Batman, to um to have engagement, to have a reason to exist, right? have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So you remove that. And, and yeah, he's got nothing. And that, that there is something to that idea, but it it just, it gets, keeps getting presented over and over and over and over. And it's not, it's not necessarily necessary to have it presented over and over. And so, yeah, I end up thinking, well, it's, it's like telling the same joke or the same song with one note, just playing over and over and over, you know, after a while it's, it gets boring there's only there's only so many times you can listen to that song tequila you know <laughs> uh and i you know i say that <laughs> without even realizing that that was one of Wee's songs right Wee herman paul rubens passed away today uh yeah very sad uh i touched <laughs> a lot of a lot of kids childhood so uh, best is his family uh but getting back to this yeah it it, it felt one note right so from that aspect didn't feel like I got a lot out of it. However, on the other hand, in terms of, you know, tying into night terrors and what have you, there might not be a lot there, but for someone who isn't as familiar with the Joker, isn't as familiar with the DC universe as we are, there can be a lot here. This is a great story to illustrate that point over and over, no matter which angle the Joker comes at it from or how he tries to make his life matter, whether it's having a job a job at Wayne Enterprises, no less, or having a family or uh, getting dressed up as Batman himself to try to give his own life meaning. It just doesn't work without the real actual Batman. So there is something to be said for that, for somebody who has not read as many Joker stories as you and I have. So I I kind of see it both ways. Um, And really, I wonder if at the end of the day, when we look back on this event, if we look at it as, yeah, you know, this is something that really is a way to bring in readers who like horror that maybe aren't as familiar with DC horror, as we know is very popular right now in comics. So is this, was this really a plan by DC editorial as much as we give them, you know, credit for doing any sort of plan. Hey, it's horror centric, bring in some new readers that like horror, introduce them to some of these concepts of the DCU and I don't know, maybe it'll work. Um, so I can see both again, I have mixed feelings. I can see both sides with this. Um, and the art was chaotic and crazy, just kind of like the story was. So, it, in terms of tone, even though it was sort of messy, the art um, it suited the tone of the book really, really well. So, uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's not in the running for my book of the week, but I, I think it, it's not as bad as my initial, my first initial when I finished reading it, going, "Oh my god, what the hell was that that I read?" Uh, try to try to be positive, as I said. Uh, Anyway, up next, we have Night Terror's Ravager, number two, from writer Ed Brisson, Dexter Soy uh, handles the art, Veronica uh, Candini on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, We mentioned last time this one seemed to tie in a little bit more to the uh, main awake portion of the DCU, I guess, with something trying to escape Ravager's dream and get out to the real world. So. Not, and that's not insomnia and doesn't have to do with the sleepless nights, but has to do with something else. So I like that there's a little more going on. I like that there possibly can be something that comes out of Night Terrors that isn't directly related to it, Insomnia or the Nightmare Stone or what have you. So, you know, credit Ed Brisson for doing something like that. Plus, he's been writing The Authority. And this sort of could have been called a Night Terror's Authority because, you know, we do see Peacekeeper 1 show up here. The Authority is mentioned uh, I understand why they call it he, he, Ravager because it does what's that? Sorry, I meant you mean Stormwatch? Stormwatch, right, right. Stormwatch. Not authority, yeah, not Stormwatch, Stormwatch. Stormwatch. Yeah. Stormwatch. Um and so yeah, it, it this does focus on uh Ravager, you know, more so than anybody, and and really focuses on her trauma in terms of her ability to um let things go with her with her father, um, and how it, she can't basically. Um so, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, this one was just a little bit more straightforward, certainly when we talk about Black Adam or the Joker uh, issues that we were just talking about where we're like, yeah, it didn't really tie in, really not much to say there. Sort of the writer just do going, uh, sky's the limit, handcuffs are off. I can do whatever I want because it doesn't count because it's a dream or nightmare or what have you. Um, and not really caring about setting things up for the future, or what have you, just telling a story that's very insular. You, you know, you expect more from Ed Brisson, and he delivers. Um, the art by Dexter Soy, very kinetic. He, he draws action as good as anybody in comics these days. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. And uh, in the hands of Ed Brisson, I'm becoming more and more a fan of Rose Wilson, more and more a fan of uh, of Ravager. So
1: uh, what were your what were your thoughts on this one? I thought Ed Brisson did a good job on this. I love the fact that the nightmare version of Rose of, of Rose Wilson is actually, uh, I mean, her father is the murder man. Whereas Ravager's father is death stroke in, in the waking world. And in the nightmare world, you got the murder man and his daughter, Rose Wilson. And the murder man has the secret. He has the plan that just got to kiss my daughter. Good night. Um, deathstroke has a part of me murder man has the plan he wants to paralyze in the nightmare realm nightmare man pardon me sorry murder man wants to uh paralyze and sever the spinal cord of ravager because he wants to basically make her immobile so that he can control when she when she's sleeping and when she's awake so that way she's the portal into the into the waking world so the murder man can enter the waking world through ravager that's his plan and he wants to leave his his nightmarish daughter rose mm-hmm. wilson in his steed to rule the nightmare realm essentially and so i i sort of like i, I thought that was kind of creative i, I sort of like that idea and i really like the design here by uh forgive me who's the artist on this uh dexter Soy. Dexter, so I, I love the art. I love the design here of Murder Man. I, I love the fact that the horns seem to come out of his his yeah, eyes, like yeah. the skull, but the, the horns yep. come out of the eyes. It's, it looks amazing. And how Rose, how how Ravager escapes the dream? Uh, she escapes the dream by essentially, it almost looks like she she freezes him. She releases some some liquid I, liquid nitrogen, I think, that sort of freezes the Murder Man and then shatters him with her with her sword. And just as she's doing that, Peacekeeper One is injecting Ro- uh, Ravager in the Waking World, is injecting her with something that it's not clear what Peacekeeper One is injecting her with, but he, he uh, but uh, at the beginning, he's uh, talking to Stormwatch headquarters and he, it looks like his plan is to inject her with what, he, what normally is injected in him, I think, Remember, Peacekeeper 1 was experimented upon by Simon Saint, a magistrate. And Simon Saint was riddled with like a a version of the fear gas. And and Peacekeeper 1 also has like nanotech in his bloodstream. So I'm not clear exactly what Peacekeeper 1 injected (laughs) uh, Ravager with to wake her up. But it might have some consequence. The other interesting aspect of this is that when when she is pulled into the waking world with the help of peacekeeper one injecting her with that sort of unknown substance. And she, she brings back with her some of the blood of the murder man and the blood seems to be alive. And so aspects, so at least an essence or some of the blood of the murder man came into the waking world. And I got to wonder now, does that mean the, is this the, uh, is this eventually going to lead to the murder man coming into the waking world? in an you know outside this event uh or not i don't know but i i actually like this because i love the murder man as a character this is a key issue well i mean i guess the last issue was a key issue but I, enjoy, I i like this this was one of the ones that okay well we're actually this is actually kind of interesting to me i you know it's something that might have actual ramifications beyond just this token event so i i enjoyed it
0: Yeah, I mean, ramifications not only beyond the token, but maybe they have nothing necessarily to do with it, you know? Um, A way to to sort of make it matter more as you go back and look at this event. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to go back and look at this event and say, uh, you know, maybe the event wasn't the most important thing or didn't really land that well, but that's where the murder man came from, right? Like, we can look back on what? uh, Infinite crisis, you know? Like... There's not a lot of people that talk about Infinite Crisis as, oh, that was such a great event. But that's where we got Jaime Reyes' Blue Beetle, right? You look at it like that. Or um, look back on the 52 series, which actually it's still very beloved, but that's where, you know, Kate Kane Batwoman first appeared. So um, things like that can can work. uh, and, And, you know, only time will tell, so. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for the Night Terrors issues. Uh, up next, we have Justice Society of America number five from writer Jeff Johns. Mikhail Yanine and Jerry Ordway are the artists. Jordi Belair and John Kalis on colors, Rob Lee on letters. I wish I'd had time to go back and reread the first four issues of this because it feels like forever that we're waiting for this to come out. I'm not sure what the heck all the delays are with this, uh, but we know there are more delays coming. It's it's really frustrating because I feel like the story has been robbed of a lot of its momentum. And thus, I'm just not enjoying it as much as I was previously. Uh, What did you think about this
1: issue? Well, I thought this was overly simplistic. I was uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I was expecting more. I wanted far more substance than this. I actually, it's interesting to hear your comments that you feel you had to go back and reread the previous issues. I actually feel the opposite because usually I'm the one that, (laughs) if I forget, I'm the one that needs you to sort of remind me of what happened. But there's there's no substance here. Literally, all we have is all of a sudden, without a lot of explanation, all of a sudden we got different versions of Per Degaton attacking different versions of the Justice Society. Madam, uh, in a nutshell, Madam Xanadu, who's got the snow globe from Flashpoint Beyond, which contains the essence of the Flashpoint universe, she uses that to essentially call forth with the help of Dr. Fate, all the different versions of the JSA, as many different versions of the USA from different timelines that she can to help uh, with the battle against Perdegaton, who attacks them, in the middle of nowhere, and there's multiple versions of Per Degaton. And the art is fantastic. Mikhail Shannon's art's fantastic. And Madame Xanadu has visions of Per Degaton at different points in history, the past, present, and future. And there's old versions of Per Degaton, new, young. Uh, and There's even a young child version of it. And essentially, it involves all the Dr. Fates who are cap- who ha- are more powerful against Per Degaton because they exist. Uh, and and the huntress herself because the huntress herself helena wayne is a is a living paradox herself she's more effective against battling uh per degaton they essentially end up containing per degaton in the snow globe so you end up with per degaton being trapped in the snow globe along with flashpoint batman flashpoint robin who is uh Deck who is Two Faces Son, uh, uh, uh Dexter Dent, along with Martha Wayne, who the Martha Wayne Joker of the Flashpoint uh universe. And he's trapped in so he's trapped in the snow globe. And meanwhile, Helena Wayne is now trapped in the future because her future no longer exists. And so those of us who are longtime readers can know that 5G. What used to be 5G doesn't exist anymore, so Helena Wayne doesn't exist, but yet she does because Helena Wayne now is a living paradox, just like Power Girl is, just like Thomas Flashpoint, Thomas Wayne is, just like Ir Bordan is, and just like Per Degaton is. So we've got these living paradoxes, and so we've got these characters in the DC universe that sort of exist that they they no they no longer have an Earth to call their own. They they. Their existence defies conventional or even scientific or even comic book science explanation. They just exist because we love them as characters, I guess. <laughs> Which, you know, such a Jeff Jones meta thing to do. So I really like the outcome here. I like the fact that at the end here, Batman is telling Madame Xanadu, you know, like you've got to send Helena Wayne back. Like, this is his daughter. And he and he knows that, you know, Helena Wayne is trapped in the present. And she's, she loves her dad. And she, how's Catwoman? How's her mother going to react to this? Selina? How's Batman going to react to this? Batman already has struggles with his own family and we got a bat Batman Catwoman Gotham war coming up. Is Helena Wayne going to be part of that? How is she going to feel? You know, she's got to know that her parents didn't always have a functional relationship. In fact, they defined dysfunction quite well. And, um, it's fat, you know, it's it's interesting. So I love the questions that I'm asking. I'm really that's one good thing about Jeff Johns. I think this this we got we got so much. This it lacked the type of substance that I wanted. I wanted more. I wanted this to be a 12 issue series. But that damn Jeff Johns, you're still too slow. Hey, if this was a 12 issue series, we wouldn't be, get to the end of 2026. Well, we can't have that, and it's it's frustrating. What I I love the writer, but I hate his slowness or whatever the reason is. Uh, I don't think it's Mikhail Shannon, but he knows. But anyways, at the end, uh, I'd like the crossover with Stargirl, The Lost Children, also written by Jeff Johns, great art by Ted Nock here. Judy Garrick, our man, they show up along with uh, Star Girl. show up at the end to when Judy Garrick, when when, uh, when uh, Jay Garrick and Mr. Terrific are talking about the problem with Helena. What are we going to do about that? So, I you know, again, I love this comic. I just wish we got more of these characters and I wish it would come out regularly because between this and what Mark Wade's doing with world's finest and with last days of Lex Luthor, I, I think that, you know, I think that's what DC needs to focus on. So I, I enjoyed this, but I, so I, I have mixed feelings. I love the new characters. I, I love that Helena Wayne's back and I can't wait for Helena to partner up with power girl again, see if Lee Williams is going to be working with, with those two to get the classic uh, world's finest team up between power girl and, and this new Helena Wayne. And yeah, so I'm excited. So, you know, despite my, my misgivings, I'm, I'm still happy with with the outcome here because it just makes, I have a smile on my face at the end of this comic, despite all the dysfunction I see in the future for Batman and Helena Wayne. But uh, what do you think?
0: Yeah. I mean, I sort of agree with you, right? Was it entertaining? Yes. Was I expecting more? Yes, you know, and maybe that's not fair for me to, because it's Jeff Johns, for me to expect something, you know, absolutely amazing every time. And I'm not by any stretch saying that he's phoning it in, but the man is busy. And I don't think it's Mikel Yanine that's taken a long time. And there's two artists on there. Ordway's doing some pages as well. Um, Right. But it just does seem like every time Johns does a comic these days that the scripts are, are, you know, the the books are late. So, you know, I don't want to point the finger at anybody, but you kind of wonder, but was the art amazing by Yanine, especially seeing all those different versions and a double page spread, all those different versions of JSA. Yes. Amazing. Did it seem like per Degaton after all this buildup was defeated, maybe a little bit too easily. Yeah. That's part of the disappointment. But when you look at what this sets up going forward, it's so interesting. Right, like we sort of already knew Thomas Wayne was a paradox. We certainly know Eobard, uh, Eobard uh, Thawne uh, is as well. You know, Reverse Flash or what have you. Um, you know, tra- traveling through time, whatever Thomas Wayne Flashpoint shouldn't exist, still does. Um, and you know, a lot of this in the uh, was established in the Flashpoint Beyond. I was surprised to see Power Girl's name of among those. You can understand why Helena Wayne is part of that as well. And she was warned not to go and tell her father that he went and how he was going to die. She didn't care. She did it anyway and destroyed her future in the process. And now she's someone who doesn't have a future to go back to. She's one as well. So yeah, that opens up a lot of potential storylines, a lot of interesting storylines. So, you know, that's all really great. What's going to happen with Jay And, and, and again, you can see the interconnected parts of the story with other things that Jeff Johnson's been doing, right? Whether it's Starbucks and the Lost Children, whether it's Flashpoint Beyond, whether it's Doomsday Clock or, or whatever, right? Uh, we know these sidekicks that supposedly were erased from history. Well, now history to some extent has been changed. We know we're getting a Jeremy Adams series that's going to talk about Flash and his daughter that he had forgotten even existed. I mean, again, th- this type of storytelling. Is great storytelling, great potential for future stories of DC and really captures what DC does best. But I go back to what I said at the beginning, like you lose so much momentum and you lose so much reader interest when things don't come out on time. And again, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, but if Johns doesn't want to do this in a timely fashion, then don't release the series until you have it all, right? Until you have all the scripts, or at least farther along, so yeah, mixed feelings about this one as well. There's a lot to love. Um, but you just wonder if uh, at some point it's like they can't even remember what happened in the last issue. Well, I'm just gonna wrap it up this way. Uh, not that there's necessarily any continuity errors. it just it felt like it was building up to some something so much bigger than this. Like when you talk about the the potential and the consequences, you see all these different iterations of per degaton. you talk about Power Girl being a paradox you talk about helena wayne being a paradox um you talk about bringing these lost sidekicks back like this is a big deal but yet it doesn't cross over into any other part of the D- main dcu right it's all sort of the jeff johns corner that it's mentioned and these are the kind of things and events that johns used to run for himself uh you know and it mattered and it feels like it matters a little bit less these days uh, and I don't necessarily blame DC or whatever. If they can't count on these books coming out on time, um, then you can't really tie the rest of the universe into it. Then you have things like what happened with Tom King's Batman run, where he wasn't able to do things in a timely fashion because they were waiting on Doomsday Clock and that sort of stuff to come out. So it's a, it's just unfortunate. Uh, all right. Up next, we have City Boy number three. This is written by Greg Pak. Minku Zhang is the artist. Sunny Gao on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. We saw last time um, Superman showed up uh, to talk to Cameron. He talks to Cameron in this one. They're they're talking to Doctor uh, McCarrison, who's working for Apocalypse, who wants to basically turn the Earth into another version of Apocalypse. He wants to take advantage of city boys ability to speak to cities to basically have the city of metropolis overrun the planet replicate itself or the planet planet will become one giant city much like uh, apocalypse with fire pits and what have you um so that's really that's a really interesting aspect of the story that greg pock has introduced here and so superman himself tries to talk to the the embodiment of the city which is like this dragon construct talks about how you know if you're a metropolis you know me you know much I care about you and what have you but he really is not able to communicate with the city in any sort of meaningful way at least not the way that city boy can and so uh it ultimately it's up to Cameron to uh to talk to the city and he has to confront some of his own trauma to some extent and I really I really appreciated that it definitely seems like he's on a journey he's growing as a character and he actually leaves Metropolis. The, the dragon morphs from this big, dangerous-looking dragon to a much smaller embodiment of the city. Uh, and when uh, Cameron decides to leave to go to Bloodhaven to sort of, uh, so I, it seems like he's going to search for his uh, for his mother and what happened uh, to her. He leaves the, the little embodiment uh, of Metropolis, the little dragon, uh, with his. Homeless friend, I guess we'll call him. Um, the one that he Fujimoto, yeah, Fujimoto, the one that, that was being uh threatened in the first place, um, by this uh, by this gang, the one that and that was the reason that his his that Cameron cut loose and uh, and unleashed his powers on um, uh, the doctor and and uh, the uh, the boss chung gang, so yeah. That, that was heartfelt as well. I, you can tell we haven't seen the last of Fujimoto and, you know, what, what this journey is going to be with Cameron and his ability, what, what his communication is going to be like with Bloodhaven? just a very interesting character. And again, um, not to use the word I've used a lot in this, uh, in this episode, but yeah, just a lot of potential here for, um, for this
1: character and for more stories. So yeah, I enjoyed this one. What'd you think? I thought it was really well. I, I really appreciate Greg Pack. He, I really appreciate his understanding of Superman, and that really, really shone through here, and you can really see that Superman is an inspiration to City Boy, and Superman cuts, uh, cuts City Boy a lot of slack here, and he allows City Boy, Cameron, to make mistakes, but to think it through for himself. It was just a wonderful portrayal of Superman. And particularly there's that dialogue, conversation between them where where Cameron is, he's kind of afraid because the embodiment of Metropolis is this monster and Superman tries, Superman almost successfully talks the monster down because he tells the monster who embodies Metropolis that the people love you, we love you, you're the city, you're home to to all all us people, you know, uh, basically telling him everything is, you know, you're great and, but it's not enough. But so Cameron has to talk to this this sort of like embodiment and, and Cameron says he, he's a monster at Cat. And Superman says to him, Well, m- monsters are in everyone. And and he says, Well, what Superman tells him, Well, what's in a monster? Well, monsters have heart. And you can you can talk to a monster. And you can, you know, you don't and everyone, just because something looks harsh on the outside doesn't mean that it's you can't find something on the inside worth loving and doesn't that embody a city right some cities are terrible right on the outside we can all we can all talk about cities we don't enjoy being at or we on the outside might might be crime ridden but they they contain wonderful people right same with countries same with cities and so you know again that comparison i thought it worked really well here I, i i have a little bit i think it's a little wonky for me the, the whole idea of of a city being embodied in in like a in in these little creatures and the fact that he left the creature alive. So I don't really understand how you can have a flying consciousness of metropolis hanging on the the a, a bum named Fujimoto in metropolis. That seems a little bit odd to me. And then now City Boy is going to go to Bloodhaven for the next issue and I'm thinking to myself is this what's going to happen? Is is City Boy gonna have an embodiment of every city in the form of a different animal in every city. And it's, you know, just, it just, that seems really odd to me. I don't, I don't quite have a handle on that. The whole idea. I liked, I liked Jack Hawksmore when he, of the authority, his, his connections to the city. I kind of liked when they were a little bit more mysterious and esoteric and sort of like something you couldn't quite get a handle on, but it was kind of cool. This idea that, you know, this city is becoming these constructs and all this other jazz. I, I don't know if it quite worked for me with that. It was a little bit corny. But Great Pak saved it for me because of the character work. And I really like this Cameron. And I love this work on Superman, too. So this is a good kid, Cameron. He's likable. I, I like to have a likable character because there's some new characters you and I could talk about that I don't like at all. <laughs> but uh, in any event, so I'm, I like Cameron. I'm good. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the question would be, if Cameron had pink hair, would you still like him?
1: (laughs) No, I wouldn't. We'll talk about the pink hair in a minute.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, speaking of, let's talk uh, Adventures of John Kent, Superman number six, final issue of this. Uh, Tom Taylor has said it's not the the end of John Kent. Uh, Sure, we'll hear about another John Kent series being announced. I just wish that, just give him his own series. Like, why not just continue this? Even if this arc is done, just continue. Like, I don't know. I mean, the answer, of course, is because you can do a new number one with a ton of covers or what have you. Just give him, if you're going to give John Kent a book, give him a book, call it Superboy and be done with it. Uh, anyway, this is written by Tom Taylor. Clayton Henry is the artist. Jordi Blair on colors, Wes Abin on letters. This is not, uh, again, what we expected it to be, what we were sold uh, on this series as. Uh, John Kent taking on uh, Ultraman. Um, but this, this finishes off John Kent versus the Justice Superman, basically. So how do you think it all played out in the end?
1: Well, I have to say this ended uh, far better than I thought it was going to be, because to be clear, and I I, I said this every time, every every issue I've, I've said this, I, I need to be very careful and review the story that is told, not the story that I wanted Tom Taylor to tell. And so, frankly, the story that Tom Taylor is telling here clearly is moving toward an attempted redemption of Injustice Superman. He clearly hinted at that at the end. It's very possible that the ending of this could result in a redeemed Injustice Superman at some point in the future, which I'm not a fan of, but I know many people would be. Because I know Tom Taylor online has gotten some slack. People have criticized his Injustice series, even though it's beloved. A lot of people think Superman would never do that. Well, here in this series, through John Kent, Uh, It's very obvious that John Kent here wants to confront Injustice Superman, who who is going to be executing Batman and executing Harley Quinn. And John Kent won't allow that to happen. So John Kent, this issue flies as he talks Barry Allen out of getting involved. He takes out Green Lantern. He takes out Hawkgirl. He he takes out Hawk uh Wonder Woman by making sure she's off planet and can't get back fast enough for, for John Kent to essentially stop. And 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 John Kent breaks out Batman and Harley Quinn, takes them to safety, and then confronts the Injustice Superman. And I mean, there's even, you know, Tom Taylor has some fun with the lines, you know, reminiscent of Superman 2. Talal, would you care to step outside, says John Kent to uh, Injustice Superman. And, you know, they, they have a confrontation and uh Injustice Superman even breaks the wrist of Jay Nakamura and it becomes quite apparent here that you know you're expecting this big battle but John Kent does the exact opposite of what Injustice Superman expects he inju- he attacks Injustice Superman but instead of hitting him he hugs him he hugs him as a as a son would hug a fa- uh, a would be father and and then Tom Taylor does something that While I have mixed feelings about, but damn, I think it works. Even though I felt forced, there's that speech that Lois Lane gave to John Kent uh, that I thought didn't make any sense. Why would Lois Lane tape a holographic speech to give to her son and say, only listen to it when you get to where you're going? Well, he plays that speech to Injustice Superman. And the words that Lois Lane speaks to her son, John, could also be interpreted a different way. If heard by Injustice Superman, and you know, because, and I thought it was very clever what Tom Taylor did because Lois Lane is as surprised as us readers are that her son John Kent seems to be unaffected by what Ultraman did, and she says to him in the holographic speech, which we saw in previous issues, "I'm sorry for what you have to go through for the trauma you had you had to face head on." and she she says after everything he did it would have been easy for you to hate but i know even now you don't and it's remarkable and lois lane is talking it's clearly she's talking to john kent she's talking about her son but we have to remember of course readers of injustice know that lois the injustice lois lane died pregnant with a would be john kent and here this injustice superman is hearing Another Lois speak to this other iteration of his son. And it's clear that this other iteration of his son is a better Superman than he is. And you can tell it takes its toll on it. And it's very effective. And just as you're, you're waiting for injustice Superman to react cyborg, cyborg injustice, cyborg hits him with a device that's going to slowly materialize him back into his own, to his own earth. And and it's basically a message that he says to Superman uh, saying that, you know, well, okay. in in a nutshell, you, you can be a better man and, you know, make different choices. And what I thought was particularly interesting is, and here's my huge prediction, outlier prediction. I think he's going to break up with that pink haired guy, Jay, Jay Nakamura. And why do I think that? Because what, um, what he realized what what one of the realizations that John Kent has when he gets back, he goes, I get it now. My father's my father's resistance or my father's hesitance to do more. It's not because it would be too hard to tackle more of a world's problems, it's because it would be too easy. And because one of the criticisms that uh John of John Kent when Tom Taylor first started writing him was that he was too proactive. He, why why is he trying to interfere with world's affairs? Did he learn nothing from his father? And it was part of, of John Kent's actions where Jay Nakamura, he met Jay Nakamura as a member of truth. And he was kind of like his own activist group. Some people call him a terrorist group. And Jay Nakamura is very, very socially active and is very, very is all for interfering in the world's affairs to make the world a better place with john kent's john kent has now seen what happens if he goes too far because he saw what happened with injustice superman how a world can live in fear but yet look okay on the surface but when you dig underneath they're fearful john kent how is john is this experience going to change john kent I think it's going to change him. I hope it does. How is this going to affect John Kent's actions when he gets back to our world? And in particular, is there going to be future conflict with Jane Nakamura? Because I think that John's attitude toward the role that he should play in the world might come into conflict with Jane Nakamura's own activist activities. And that might disrupt the relationship, allowing John Kent to finally embrace the love of his life, Saturn Girl. (laughs) Uh, that's all i gotta say about
0: that i was about to say uh are you saying it might or you saying i hope it does
1: that's i hope it does that's that's my that's my wish
0: that's my head canon okay fair (laughs) enough uh yeah i mean you're right this does work um it does you you know you're right as well saying it does feel a little forced first of all you know very clever for taylor to do it this way right to take that message that Lois recorded for John to listen when he get you know got to you know place where he was going, knowing he was going to confront Ultraman. Uh, it, it works. It, it works, right? And it, it's what we had said. You know, me. I don't know if you want to say that I was defending Taylor in his story, but um, in a way, yeah, like like, hey, this does work in terms of let Taylor tell the story he wants to tell. Uh, th- this injustice, Superman, is in a way a stand-in for Ultraman. But in a way, it makes it more emotional, right? Um, Because we know Ultraman's the bad guy. We know Ultraman doesn't have um, John Kent's best interest at heart in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, could we in turn look at this and say, okay, well, based on what Tom Taylor did, it's actually a better story, the fact that it's Injustice Superman, rather than... Um, then Ultraman. I mean, there there is a school of thought where where I think that that's that's actually true because it, it does make sense to some extent, especially when you look at it in the context of what John says to Injustice Superman. You know, I, I'm not the son that that was killed. You know, I could never I the way I am, who I am as a person, could never be your son. I mean, he's really giving some hard truths to the, the injustice Superman, you know, he he says it multiple times, there's something wrong with this world. You know, the fact that, that wonder woman or Diana does, you know, she, she would never act like this. This is not the Diana that, you know, that I know from my world, she would never do these these sorts of things. So it's a very interesting story at the end of the day with what, um, with what John confronts injustice Superman with, you know, do better and what have you what I don't like about it is the fact that it, it doesn't really have an ending. It's open-ended. Um, and I guess in a lot of ways you, you, because he chose, because Taylor chose to set this in the injustice universe at a time before the story uh, of the injustice universe, we know how that ends, that the ending was written. So it couldn't really do something like have the injustice Superman turn over and, uh, you know, another leaf or do something totally out of character because there's more stories to come, right? Like it's, It's no different than watching the Titanic or one of the Star Wars prequels or whatever. You're limited in what you can do because the story, you know, you you know what happens later. The story has to continue, what have you. Um, But ultimately, John Kent was very true to himself with what he did, choices that he made throughout the series. Um, So you give kudos to Tom Taylor for doing that. Um, I do have to ask, though, you know, based on what happened in uh, Superman, son of Kal-El and the fact that all along Taylor planned to never have John Kent actually punch anything. Uh, One did slip through um, accidentally, but even here, when it comes time to confront the injustice, Superman, he he talks about being fast. It gives the impression that he's going to, he's going to actually fight Superman. He's going to actually fight injustice, Superman. And then ultimately that's, we know that's not what happens you mentioned it he moves at super speed and he hugs him so i only mention it i only bring it up to say this what is it going to take to have john kent actually fight some things actually <laughs> punch some things you know um and i and i don't know i don't know the answer to that
1: so well, have well to- i know he wouldn't have hugged Ultraman.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah 100% 100% so we'll have to wait and see uh, up next, we have Peacemaker Tries Hard, book number four, written by Kyle Starks. The art is by Steve Pugh, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by Becca Carey. What are your thoughts on this one?
1: Uh, this one was uh, – I, I remain entertained by this. I The, the humor in this, I thought, was – Even better than, uh, what was certainly on par with the, with the, the second, the the second issue. This is the fourth, the third issue. Sorry. (laughs) And, uh, I love, I love, I love the variant covers as well. I love the, um, I actually, from my retailer, I ordered the, the previews, I ordered the movie covers. Those, they're actually my favorite. And, uh, yeah, it's just, just really good. Uh, The the art, Steve Hughes' art is fantastic. Uh, this issue has, Peacemaker. Peacemaker wants to find. He wants to uh, rescue his dog Bruce Wayne. He called. You know, he's he. He wants to rescue his dog Bruce Wayne, and he's he. And the wow. brain and Ma, Mala betrayed Peacemaker, and they they actually tried to kill him, but he survived. And now, last issue, oh, the stop. Peacemaker has a new sidekick <laughs> called the Red Bee, who's helping him. And the Red Bee is an individual who's got one bumblebee, who is a, sort of like a superpowered bumblebee that helps him out. I'm not even sure if it's a superpowered bumblebee, but it seems to have like strength in it. And here, this issue is hilarious. A peacemaker, they go to a cafeteria, they, they confront General Immortus in a cafeteria who's ordering pie, and then they threaten to shove a napkin dispenser up his rectum, and General Immortus... Uh, you know, was uh, called their bluff, but then changed his mind because he didn't want a napkin dispenser up his rectum. (laughs) And uh, this is the type, uh, again, we've said it before, this is the type of humor you would expect to be right out of the Peacemaker series. I think it's funny. It's crazy. At one point, Peacemaker even calls Amanda Waller, your favorite character. And Amanda Waller, uh, he actually manages to convince Amanda Waller. He's talking about Bruce Wayne, his dog. But The way the conversation goes, Amanda Waller actually thinks that he's going to be kidnapping Bruce Wayne, and that gets Amanda Waller's attention. She's all for that until she discovers that the Bruce Wayne he's talking about is actually his dog. <laughs> and well, that's not going to work out. And it's we got a flashback of Red B in World War II where soldiers are getting killed. Uh, they end up he ends up fighting, uh, they end up being a At the end, they end up fighting a character by the name of Snowflame, who is a cocaine-powered supervillain smuggler, (laughs) and uh, it involves poison poison frogs and poison centipedes, and he ends up defeating this cocaine-snorting villain called Snowflame by putting the poisonous frog in this giant batch of cocaine powder that he snorts and he ends up unfortunately snorting the, the poisonous frog. It's absolutely insane. Meanwhile, the bumblebee manages to to to, to uh, get into the handcuffs and take the handcuffs off red bee. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. The art's fantastic. The battle between snores flames and, and Uh, peacemaker really is hilarious it's 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 fun to go through the pages the art here is truly fantastic this is has my my vote for best art of the week hands down best i I think this story is well paced it's funny it's it's action-packed and and it ends on a cliffhanger with you know they finally locate the the tower where brain the brain and mala are and it promises to have a confrontation between Peacemaker and Deathstroke next issue. I thought this was fantastic. This was, you know, this is, again, this is one of my top three of the week. And I'm I'm still deciding what's going to be my pick of the week, but I really enjoyed this one. What about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, what's not to love about this? I mean, Peacemaker, don't get me wrong. He's a total idiot. He's a total moron, but you love him. (laughs) You love him. You love him for it, right? I mean, he's just, he's so inept and so... Just over the top, ridiculously dumb, um, but it, it works, you know. And you can, as much as I don't like Amanda Waller, you can you can totally understand where she's coming from when she, you know, after the conversation with uh, with Peacemaker when he's saying, uh, you know, yeah, we're gonna go save Bruce Wayne, and you know, you can tell she's like, wait, Bruce Wayne? How, how how does he even know who Bruce Wayne is? And then when it comes out, he realizes, wait, it's you're talking about your dog she opens up the little briefcase where she has every, you know, the button where she can blow everybody's brain up. And she's like, she's, you know, hesitating over it. She's like, God, I, this guy needs to go. The world would be better off. Uh, it's just so ridiculous. And then ultimately, you know, decides not to. So yeah, this, this is over the top. This is ridiculous, but it's also laugh out loud. Funny. You're right about the art. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, but there are, (laughs) there are some heartfelt moments and you can't help but feel bad for peacemaker. Um, you know, part of it is his own doing. He's such a meathead and he's, he's so ill-mannered, but you you don't blame him. You you we've had hints and past issues of the way he was raised. It's not a hundred percent his fault that he's the way that he is, (laughs) but you can understand why he has no friends and nobody wants to hang out with him. Um, except for Red B, who's technically his parole officer. So yeah, is this just a lot of fun? Um, it's unfortunate that it, that a lot of the humor is adult humor so you can't you know this isn't something that i would recommend for kids but I, <laughs> I i do wish that there were comics that had this level of humor that that were for kids i mean and i don't know i've never read any dog man stuff maybe or captain underpants maybe that's what this is for kids um but yeah there's a lot there's a lot to to like here a lot to love here so yeah big big fan of peacemaker tries hard uh, all right, up next we have Steelworks number three. This is written by Michael Dorn. The art is by uh, Sami Basri and Vicente uh, Sofuentes. Andrew Dalhouse and Ulysses Ariola handle the colors. Rob Leon Letters. What were your thoughts on this one?
1: Uh, you know, I, I got to give, uh, I got to continue to give credit to, uh, let me, sorry, just let me bring it up on the screen here. Um, I am very beginning here. Um, Yeah, Michael Dorn, writer Michael Dorn. Actually, uh, I'm impressed here because I thought that, uh, because my initial fear is that, you know, well, how how much can you really work with this idea of AI and future tech and everything else? But Michael Dorn is making it his own. And, you know... The the issue here, which I think is actually, it's extremely timely and very very interesting. In particular, just just this past weekend, I was reading on Twitter of all places, uh, it was a link to they've they've actually discovered a way to eliminate uh, to create motors and engines without generating heat. And this is apparently a, a, supposed to be a monumental discovery. Anyone listening can Google this. Uh, the the patent is it's free online it's it's they they believe it's going to be revolutionary our iPhones in the future will no longer be generating heat they it's it's literally something we won't require cooling systems for mechanical machinery anyways i'm just putting that out there this is stuff that's happening in real time our world is changing very quickly and technology is is we're, we're being bombarded with it and zero point energy is what john henry irons has created and and that's thanks in part to his studies of warworld world tech, and uh, what's interesting is that there's what John Hen, uh, Henry Irons is wrestling with is to what extent should he should he introduce this to the world, and he's got he's got some interesting quotes that I uh, that Superman actually said said an interesting quote Superman said to him when he was debating the the, the merits of it with Superman Superman says. You know regarding technology moving too quickly is society ready you know and the quote is what will become of us if there is nothing to save if technology can do everything for us and we don't require saving what then and there's a great jonathan saffron uh uh quote which is where that's from save a king and you've saved a nation save a warrior and you've got a battle but we are who we choose to be and it's all about good intentions a good quote from Amy Tan you can't have intentions without consequence consequences the question is who pays the consequences it's like saving a fish from drowning it's the same thing you know is it worth you know you can sit you can pull a fish out of water you, you think you're saving it from drowning but you're actually killing the fish is it really helpful to us to have all this technology and this is what john henry Irons is uh, is dealing with he's he's not sure if the world is ready for this new tech and natasha his niece is uh she's uh she was attacked last issue by this 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 other character whose name i forget uh this new character and and she, her her molecules uh, almost became merged with her suit and so he's concerned about that and uh walker industries is is Sent their androids to attack people during the Superman uh, Superman Day celebrations, and and it. I think that I think what's happening here, if I'm reading this correctly, and I might be wrong, but there's something about this new zero point energy that John Henry Irons has created that might potentially be having a negative impact on Lana Lang, his uh, his girlfriend, who whose powers are her traditional superwoman powers have returned and they're going all out of whack. And so I'm wondering where Michael Dorn is going with this. What is Michael Dorn's statement going to be as a writer in terms of, are we going to get zero point energy? Is John Henry Irons going to be like Tony Stark or is he going to choose to maybe keep all his, uh, his weaponry, uh, all, all this technology closer to the, to the chest? I don't know, but I'm really enjoying it. I think it's very timely. A scenario, it's a, a timely timely situation. It's an interesting topic. I it's it's done in the context of the DC universe. Michael Dorr seems to have a handle on the characters. He knows a lot about AI. He knows a lot about he knows of he knows a lot about metaphor and themes. He's a Star Trek fan. Of course, he was Wharf. He knows how to write these types of stories and I can tell. And so I'm impressed that I'm 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 on board with this and I, I'm curious to see how what he's gonna have John Henry Adams, John Henry Irons say to the answer to those questions regarding uh the merits and the uh morality of zero point energy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I continue to be super impressed with Warf writing this story in the DCU. Um you know, clear that he he's taken a lot of the the themes about futurism and Um, you know, looking out for your fellow man. And, you know, a lot of those sort of positive themes from Star Trek and, and is applying them to the DCU. I don't know that I would have expected it to be in a John Henry Irons book, a steelworks book, but, but that is interesting in and of itself, right? The fact that it's called steelworks and not steel, it's not just focused on John Henry Irons or Natasha, but rather both of them really metropolis as a city, um, and the Superman family, you know, we see plenty of them show up here. Very curious to see Lana Lang. I, I love that Superwoman series when it first started. I-, I feel so bad that it got editorial directed, heavy handedly, editorially directed in a different um, direction than Phil Jimenez originally had wanted it to go, because I think it would have been really interesting had it had he been able to do what he originally planned. But I, I like the idea of Lana Lang as this different sort of superwoman um, this with the red and white costume, and what have you. So how that's all going to play out, we'll have to wait and see. I, I don't know. Is this a, a limited series? Was it? I, I can't remember when it was announced, if it was announced as a, as a limited or ongoing um, but Good question. It, yeah, but it's, it's, yeah, it's great. The villains are great. Um I'm I'm a big again just super impressed. I'm not aware of Michael Dorn writing any comics previously. I, he he probably I mean he is a writer, so he if I had to guess he's probably written some um some Star Trek comics previously, but I don't know that for sure. Um let me just I'm going to look it up real fast here. Uh no, if I look it looks like this is the first thing first comic he's ever written. Steelworks, so yeah, super impressed. The art by Sammy Basri and uh, Safuentes is fantastic. So I, I'm I'm really surprised how much I'm enjoying it. And not not because I didn't expect it to be good, but just because I, I ha- have never been a big fan of Steel. Like, when yeah. we go back and look at those four different versions of Superman, you know, the, the Metropolis Kid, the Man of Tomorrow, the Last Son of Krypton... And the man of steel, you know, those were kind of the subtitles of the of the four, being uh obviously the uh Connor Kent uh being the Metropolis Kid and the Man of Steel being John Henry Irons and um the man of tomorrow being um what turned out to be cyborg Superman and then uh the last son of Krypton was uh the Eradicator. Um Steel was my least favorite of those three. I, I just, I found him to be the least interesting. And so never been a huge fan of John Henry Irons. I like him in the role he's in now, more of almost like a Mr. Terrific like character or a Tony Stark like character, less in the costume, more out of the costume, more dealing with ideas of futurism and science, you know, scientific discovery and what have you and letting his niece, um, wear the, wear the armor, if you will. But I still don't understand how her mouth opens and closes, but whatever. Leave that for <laughs> another day uh, but yeah I, I I say all that to say I'm really I'm really enjoying it to my surprise how much I am enjoying it so uh, all right last book we're going to talk about in detail the Sandman universe Thessaly special number one from writer James Tynan uh, Maria Levette is the artist Simon Boland on letters and world design uh, on letters and uh, or sorry Simon Boland on letters uh, and world design doing the text page design so Maria Lovett the artist is doing the line work and the colors. Um, so you're a lot more familiar with Thessaly than I am. So, uh, give us your thoughts on this issue.
1: Um, yeah, sorry. I'm just, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm just increasing the size of that. Yeah. this uh, honestly, I could, we could have a, th- I could give a 30 minute review of this comic. Boy, oh boy. This there's so much crammed in this issue. First of all, I, I don't have enough time. I don't want to spend all the time I could in this issue this was actually one of my favorite in terms of this this is so rich in subtext and so much is going on this connects the dead boys that we reviewed the dead boy detectives along with uh the, the nightmare country uh the glass house uh with what's going on with the corinthian and the dead girl madison flynn whose soul was uh, uh morpheus the salmon connected the soul of madison flynn to the corinthian to prevent the Corinthian from just randomly killing whoever he wants, and Madison Flynn, uh, the Corinthian has to get has to receive Madison Flynn's consent before he can kill anybody. Uh, now, tie into that: there's this movie company, the Teague Corporation, is hiring a movie company to do a story on Madison Flynn's life, and this somehow forces a beat has attracted Thessaly the witch out of her adventures with the dead boy detectives, Thessaly the witch ends up, uh, she's drawn to this Teague corporation and she doesn't really know why she's drawn there, but we know that Thessaly had a relationship with Morpheus and she may have been in love with Sandman at one time. It's hinted at, and she's got, she's got a motive here and she confronts a, one of the workers of this T of this corporation of this particular movie company this g- woman named Tommy uh, is her job is to tr- hire a writer to finish the script on the Madison Flynn project to tell the story of Madison Flynn well Thessaly knows that that Madison Flynn is dead and that she's not in the afterlife because Thessaly has checked she's got the power to check. So Thessaly is is not in the afterlife. So where is that where is the soul of of Madison Flynn? Thessaly doesn't know. Meanwhile, so she wants to she's having a conversation with this Tommy and Tommy hires one of her friends Ambrose to to write the script. Thessaly puts a spell on him and he he basically works for days to finish the script and essentially you you get snapshots of Thessaly's life. And she's lived for centuries, for centuries. And Thessaly's always been good at protecting herself and, and being very, very selfish and, and narcissistically protecting all herself and manipulating people basically to get what she wants. And she doesn't know what the hell's going on at this Madison Flynn, but she's attracted to this this Madison Flynn project. She knows that somehow it's connected. I think, I suspect she she feels that it's connected to... Morpheus connected to the afterlife somehow. There are other forces at bay. At the end, we get Taliope, uh, uh, Taliope, who is a, 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 a muse, who is who warns Tommy that you should tell Thessaly that because Thessaly offers Tommy whatever she wants in as a thank you to for helping her, and she gives she gives Tommy an aspect of herself and and that's not necessarily a good thing. She gets an impression of Thessaly is imprinted upon Tommy and Tommy then is given a message while she's under the spell and they touch a crystal ball. she's given a message from Morpheus to warn Thessaly that be very careful what you wish for. You might think you want what you think you want, but you probably don't want it and Thessaly is is you know doesn't care so she's going to be diving in to find out more about this madison Flynn project and we know that the the corporation that is making this movie about madison Flynn's life it's kind of a cult it's a devil cult and and they, they desire the destruction of the world so there's this is armageddon armageddon like stakes here and it's clear that madison doesn't know what she's getting into and it's clear that madison has maybe got an eye to manipulate or get even or to kill Morpheus. And I'm not really sure why. I <laughs> I wish, I almost want to go back and reread a bunch of past Sandman, but there's a lot of subtext there. There's a lot of substance here. If you've been following this so so long, uh, you'll definitely be into this. Uh, Maria Lovett's art is an acquired taste. I'm not always a fan of it, but it works here. And uh, she did the art for uh, Brian Azzarello's uh, Faithless series, which is very, very sort of like soft, sort of soft core adult. And I, I thought it worked here. If there's one criticism of James Tynion's work here, because he's he's done all these Sandman universe, this Thessaly, the the Glass House, he's done all the work. I don't like how things are disconnected. We 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 should have. These things should feel more coherent. This should have been all one series. It shouldn't be broken up. This shouldn't be a Thessaly special. It should be part of, you know, the Dead Boy Detectives, the the Glass House, because this is continued in Glass House. It's just confusing. It's very wonky how they're jumping back and forth. This is absolutely going to be something that reads way better as a trade, because it's all going to be collected in order. It's going to be much easier to read. So I cannot in good conscience recommend that people pick this up blind. I say, wait for the trade. You'll be rewarded that way. Uh, it's only because I've I've been following this so long that I can appreciate the work that James Tynan has put into this. But wait for the trade if you haven't read it yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I'm not familiar with Sandman, I haven't read a lot of it. Um, only recently with uh, this latest iteration of the Sandman universe. I tried to get into it in 2016 when they launched the Sandman universe stuff, but I kind of fell off. Uh, but you're right in in saying that this really ties in with the Nightmare Country series that James Tynan's been doing, the Dead Boy Detectives that we had from Porn Sack So So uh, it really works on a lot of levels. This, for me, as somebody who was not that familiar with Thessaly, except for those series I just mentioned, this provided a lot of context, gave me a lot more information about Thessaly. I really enjoyed the text pieces. I thought that it worked really, really well. Um, so you're right in saying that if you haven't read any of the Sandman Universe stuff, you'd probably be better off waiting for the the large trade that collects it all. But if you just want to know about Thessaly, if you want to use this as your gateway to maybe go back and read the first volume of Nightmare Country um, or the Dead Boy Detectives or what have you, this will totally work on that level as well. Um, and yeah, the art suits the tone of the story. Thessaly is She's such an interesting character. She's so complex, right? Um, Because in a way, she's not somebody you should be rooting for. Um, She's the protagonist, but definitely not a hero. But then when you look at the things that she's done and the choices she's made in her life, who among us would not do whatever you have to do to survive, right? Even at the expense of others. Um, So when you've lived as long as she has, it becomes your only sort of motivation is to keep survive you've survived so long all you can think about is how do I continue to survive so there there's a relatability there even if there's not necessary or an understanding i should say even if there's not necessarily um a relatability or or you know uh the ability to root for her and say yes i would do the same thing in her situation you might not agree with what she does But you understand why she does it. And to me, those are the best sort of villains. Uh, Not that I would go so far as to say she's a villain. She's sort of amoral, right? Like she doesn't do anything for the sake of being bad or wanting power or whatever. Her entire existence is predicated on her making decisions so that her existence will continue. So anything that she sees as a threat, she just wants to wipe it out. So there's something to be said for that sort of single-mindedness. And again, it's an interesting character because you can sort of predict her behavior, uh, what she's going to do based on that those motivations, but it just makes for interesting stories. So uh, really impressed with what Tynan did here, and I'm glad DC did this because it provides, as I said, so much more context to what's going on in uh, Nightmare Country. Glass House is the one that's going on right now, and gives context to the things that uh, came before as well. So, uh, like I said, that's the last book we're going to talk about in detail. Uh, there is also Scooby Doo, Where Are You? Number one twenty three that is out this week. And then there are a ton of uh, collected editions for DC. We have Swamp Thing, Green Hell hardcover, which is written by Jeff Lemire, Doug Monkey on art, David Barron on colors. Blue Beetle Graduation Day, which was the series uh, that was written by Joshua Trujillo, uh, with art by Adrian Gutierrez. It has both a hardcover and a softcover out this week. Uh, Batman One Bad Day Bane, has a hardcover, as does Batman One Bad Day Clayface. Uh, All of the previous Teen Titans stories um, that are sort of young adult that were written by Cami Garcia with art by Gabriel Piccolo, those are being reprinted in a new edition with a connecting cover. So we have Teen Titans Raven, then we have Teen Titans Beast Boy, and then we have the one that brought them together, Teen Titans, Beast Boy, Loves Raven. So those three are all collected, as I said, new editions with a connecting cover. And then adding to that world of uh, Cami Garcia writing Teen Titans, we have her version of Robin uh, in a new graphic novel, trade paperback, that's out this week as well. And then uh, also in sort of the young reader line, we have Young Alfred, Pain in the Butler, uh, which is written by Michael Northrop. Sam Lufty is the artist. And, uh, it's Alfred as he attends the Gotham Servant School. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a different version of, of Alfred. Obviously we know in the main DC continuity. Yeah. He, he was trained by his father to be a butler, went to school and what have you. But that all happened overseas in the UK here in this one. Uh, I think they want to tie it a little more closely to Gotham. So he's going to the Gotham Servant School. So kind of in line with a lot of those um series that we have that talk about you know gotham academy or arkham academy or that kind of thing in a, in a school setting uh and then finally the last collected edition i'll mention is punchline the gotham game hardcover which i don't think that we found um really enjoyable i thought it was okay didn't really advance punchline as a character as much as we probably thought it would uh that one's written by blake and tinny howard uh great art by gled meldikoff colors by uh, Laris guerrero so those are the collections that are out big week for dc Uh, and now comes the moment of truth, Rocky. You can't put it off any longer. What's your, uh, DC book of the week?
1: Oh man. Um, it's still, it's still tough. Uh, and you gave me so much time to think about it too. Um, I'm going to, you know, it was, it it was tough. I, well, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat. I have to cheat a little bit because I I think it's only fair that uh, the one I enjoyed the most from a storytelling point of view was Thessaly, because I'm a I'm a you know I'm not a huge Sandman buff, but I really appreciated the the work in uh, uh, for uh, for Thessaly, and I just want to show that uh, uh, yeah Thessaly and but as for as for DC work, I'm gonna go with Night Terror's uh, Batman. Because uh, I, I really thought it just spoke to me because of my own personal experience the, the, of connecting with your inner child, <laughs> and I thought with Bruce Wayne, what what Bruce Wayne said to a younger version of himself, I thought was just beautiful. And because if you can love your your the little boy in you, if you can love the inner child in you, then then you can be your own hero and you can overcome anything. And that's the uh, that's what I thought was a beautiful message with Batman too, and in a nightmare book on top of it. So. About yourself,
0: yeah, it is tough, um, and not because anything stood head and shoulders out above above the rest. But there were, you know, several books that, were, uh, that I really enjoyed. Justice Society of America, you know, it could have been more, but it was super enjoyable. I liked the ending of Adventures of John Kent Superman, but also kind of the same thing. It, it could have been more. Um, Steelworks is really impressive. Thessaly, uh, you know, I really enjoyed. gave a lot more context, uh, but I can only pick one. And uh, you know, Peacemaker try hard, tries hard. Uh, I didn't mention that one either. Just laugh out loud funny. It was a good uh, week. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really was. But for me, not for any of the night terrors. I'm, I'm not really considering any of the night terrors ones. Although Bat- Batman probably was the best, as you said. Uh, wow, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Steelworks. I'm gonna go with Steelworks, and and I'll, I'll say that the thing that puts it over the top for me. Is Michael Dorn's writing um, the fact that you know we confirm this is the first comic the guy's ever written? He's knocking it out of the park in terms of pacing and story ideas and and the heart that it has. It feels very much like a Superman book. It has that the real feels uh, you know of a Superman book with hope for tomorrow and trying to see the best in people. And so yeah, interesting villains as well. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna go. Still works. Right on. Uh, All right, everybody, that's going to do it. I encourage you to keep uh, listening to the Comic Source uh, on your favorite podcast platform. I'm still in the process of getting out all the content and interviews I did at San Diego Diego Comic-Con. They're really, uh, really worth your listen, especially Joe Casey talking about uh, the upcoming Neil Before Zod and Raphael Grandpa talking about the upcoming Batman Gargoyle of Gotham. Uh, I also encourage everybody, I just put an article up um, on the Comic Source website as well as the LRM online website for The Cull, which is Kelly Thompson's creator-owned book that's coming out uh, August 16th. I did a comprehensive look pretty much at just about everything that's that we know about the series so far. I have had a chance to read the first issue. It is so amazing. The art is absolutely incredible. I can't wait. It's a five-issue series. I can't wait for more. Um, I don't want people to miss this book. That's why I'm, I, I wrote... The, the article I wrote is... 2000 words nearly and tons of art and I put it out there and I'm putting it out on social media, retweeting every day because I want, I need as many people to pick up this book as possible because this is a book you do not want to miss because it is something yeah. special. Um, it's, it's just so good.
1: And so it's, oh, it's, yeah. I enjoy her black cloak. I've been reading that. I've been enjoying black yeah. cloak. So black cloak I'll, I'll, is, check, yeah. I'll have, definitely have to check out the call.
0: Yeah. Uh, and there are, there's links to uh, Mattia D. Luis his, uh, his digital painting where you can go on youtube and watch a little two minute video of him doing the digital painting there's links to all that in the article it's just it's fantastic you do not want to miss the series i promise you um yes yeah. it's, it's going to be worth your while Phil, so, uh,
1: i want to give a shout out to you as well i i listened to your ram v interview at the san diego comic-con and your dennis culver uh, my favorite was the ram v one uh, i was great to hear dennis culver too he's such so passionate about comics and ram v uh just all all the comments and some some of the things he hinted at with the vigil uh i'm definitely uh it's getting me it got me more excited for the vigil quite frankly and so i've been reading ahead too and i've i enjoyed the next issue of the vigil so yeah it's really good and i wish doom patrol was longer than it was so i'm i'm excited for uh i'm excited for some uh, robot man and Z- zatanna in the future uh, if I read in between the lines of what I ho- hope in the future, I'd like to see more of Robot Man and Zatanna. So I encourage everybody to go to Comic Source Podcast, listen to those, subscribe uh, and, uh, you know, those interviews. Because what I like about them, too, is that they're like 15, 20 minutes long. So they're really quick to listen to it. There's a lot of substance to them. It's well done.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I wish there was a little more substance to the Joe Casey one. But, you know, he was limited in what he could say because uh, that Neil before Zod series doesn't come out until January. Yeah. So when it gets closer, after the first issue drops, probably have a lot better idea yeah. what that's about. But yeah, a few more interviews yeah, in- are coming. So be sure you go and uh, subscribe, as Rocky said, and check them out. And don't forget to head over YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's YouTube channel as well. Comic Space Boom! Exclamation Point! Once you're there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell, leave a comment. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of our DC spotlights or the other content that Rocky has on the channel. So we appreciate everybody's support as always. And we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content.